Welcome to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and, and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of Sense Making in a Changing World, I'm talking with someone who's been living and working entirely in the permaculture world for over three decades. His work in Nepal is inspirational and has influenced many programs globally. He fell in love with Nepal way back in 1985 when he was living there as a volunteer for community forestry programs. But he realised soon that that international development models actually working. That's when he discovered permaculture and enrolled himself in a permaculture design course with Bill Mollison. And since then, he's helped to adapt permaculture to the Himalayan context and brought learning opportunities to thousands of small farms, creating demonstration centres, local curriculum and resources, school programs, uh, leading permaculture courses, training the trainer courses, and also helping with the establishment of barefoot trainers who go as needed to the villages to help build resilience in farming communities. He says himself that he's actually not driving this, he just offers advice as needed and helps to do international networking, that this is actually a a self-directed program 
and is absolutely wonderful. I'm so thrilled to welcome to the show Chris Evans, who I met 25 years ago, together uh, with his partner, Luby McNamara, who's also been a guest of this show, and his daughters, Shanti and Taya. Um, they started the Applewood Permaculture Centre in England on the Welsh border. I was so thrilled to visit them there back in 2019, before COVID hit, um, to catch up Um, and also to spend this time with him today to really dive more deeply into the work that he does uh, in permaculture development. So many valuable lessons in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Chris. It's an absolute delight to have you here. I think we our work has kind of been in similar places obviously within permaculture for for a very long time and we met first oh my gosh was it in Perth in was it in Perth did you come to the Perth International Conference in 1996 or something ridiculously Mm -hmm. a long time ago yeah oh my gosh I was there yeah well welcome to the show and maybe we can just begin there like your life, like my life, has been very much surrounded with the whole world of permaculture. Where did it begin for you? Like what's got you started in the world of permaculture and why did you stay in it? What attracted you and what keeps you? Yeah, it's a story I've told many times, um, I suppose, uh, but it's always different each time. Um, so I was um, working in Nepal. Um, as a volunteer with um, an organisation called VSO, Voluntary Service Overseas. Um, And I was uh, seconded to a community forestry Mm programme. So I was working in community forestry with uh, a project that was actually in 29 districts of Nepal. Um, Very big, highly funded FAO, World Bank, United Nations and and government funded project. And it was hopeless. Um, it was, you know, um, it was it utterly failed in its goals to, you know, plant more trees, involve people more in, in community forests, et cetera, et cetera. It has worked in some areas uh, better, but in my area, which was the district of Jajakot, very remote in those days, um, uh, very remote, you know, no electric, no roads, no nothing like that. Um, but I just reveled in the culture and the, yeah, the remoteness um, and you know the back to back to earth type. It just really, I just really fitted. Um, but a frustration with the program, with the project. I came across permaculture in 1988 um, after I'd been in Nepal already for a couple of years, um, and uh, yeah, it just resonated. Um, there was a bill had just been to Bill Mollison, that is, had just been to Nepal. Um, and with a local chap, uh, Badri Dao, um, uh, started an organisation called INSAN, Institute for Sustainable Agriculture in Nepal. Um, I tacked on to that, um, did some reading, um, did my PDC with uh, Bill and Lee Harrison in New Zealand in 1989, January, after the third conference, the third conference and convergence um, uh, that was in New Zealand. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and then took it on from there. We started, uh, started a farm, um, uh, in, in the district where I'd been working as a VSO. I was still with VSO, used that time as a transition then to go independent. Um, and, uh, we started the Jazzicorp Permacops program, um, which became hugely popular and successful, uh, mainly, if you look at it in terms of the outputs uh, achieved with the money spent. So so we were working in 63 villages. We had 12,000 farmers that were connected, um, you know, staff. We were doing festivals and, and trainings and four different districts. It was huge or it became huge. Um, and But our budget was like the cost of a, a land cruiser. Uh, $70,000 or something like that. For Where did you get that money from to get that happening? 
uh, scraped around. I mean, it started with a with a five hundred pound grant from um, from I think was it Oxfam through VSO. So that so so that was the last connection with them to was to raise a bit of money and a loan from my dad to buy the the land that we that I lived on uh, to start the first farm. Um, and uh, so so you know small amounts here and there basically scraped together. There were some longer term connections as well which we greatly appreciated um some organizations charities stuck with us for you know years and years and years very important um and it just grew it just grew so is that farm that original farm still going or is it no it's not it's been it's it's been uh encircled Uh, i actually haven't been back to that district um for over 20 years now because of the Maoist insurgency originally oh. that, that I had to leave because of that in in the end of the 90s 1998 was the last time I was there um uh, and I haven't had the chance to go back uh, to so that area. there's lots of questions that have come up for me in what you've just said there first but maybe we can go um right back to the start when you were saying that you were there and you just really connected with with the with the culture and the way of life and you just felt it fit and something that I experienced in Ladakh when in my early twenties that I felt maybe there's something kind of similar to this and it's what led me to to permaculture as well. I wonder where you like with permaculture and the work that you're doing there. How did how did that fit? And what was the relationship with the local people, how they responded to this thing called permaculture being offered as a way different, I guess, from these other programs you've seen? Mm. Um, well, I say the relationship came from the failure of the original project I was working <laughs> with, um, So, so uh, which was about planting trees. And what I found out through the cultural connection was that it's, you know, actually farmers clear trees to farm. So so then you say you want to go planting trees and it's like that's in direct conflict with, with you know, their, what, what they're doing, what they're needing to do in order to maintain and increase the farm productivity. So so when permaculture came along, it, 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 it showed me that it was more than just farm, uh, planting trees. I had to look. At, at local economics, at culture, um, at you know farming, uh, not just forestry, mm-hmm. um, and it, and it really just helped me to connect the dots between between all those different sectors, and that and that in fact life is connected and integrated together. Um, so that was the big that was the big kind of aha moment <clears throat> aha moment um, with with looking at, at, uh, at permaculture in those areas. Mm-hmm. And what, and, what and, and the fact, of course, that, that as Mollison said, you know, takes takes permaculture takes its lessons a lot from uh, acknowledges in, indigenous cultures as well, and so looking at those, you know, learning what they are is the first step before you look to intervene or or, or make an action. It's it's learn what's there, and so that's why I, I set to with these new eyes of, of integration. Mm. So I wonder what were some of the first things that you noticed that that they went, oh, aha, this is useful. Like what were the things which were the kind of the interesting bits for them that they went, oh, well, I'll take that bit and then opened up to all the other things. What was that first point of connection you think that really made them interested in it? The connection connection with the land the understanding of soil and and local climate and and biodiversity um yeah the the seeds um the 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 organic nature i mean organic by proxy really you know because these areas were too far to get chemicals and and uh, and that sort of thing and it's interesting that you know, on one hand, that's the situation. On the other hand, what I knew underlying that was that if a, an organisation came with bags of fertiliser and, and hybrid seeds, a lot of the farmers would say, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. That must be good because it comes from the outside and it's modern. Um, and, you know, development has traditionally not 
uh, acknowledge the richness of traditional systems, indigenous systems. They've been, they've actually been an impediment to modernization, um, and and that was a big learning for me as well. Um, and so a big part of the work um, became to to acknowledge and um, appreciate, you know, those systems that farmers have, and to you know show that actually don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you want to improve your farming, um, you know, base it on what you've already got uh, and, and find what are the niches um, to improve, you know, what are the tweaks to the system? And there were many, um, you know, it's not all perfect and it's a very hard life, uh, subsistence farming, um, and especially for gender um, and, you know, for people at the margins and marginal communities in, in Nepal, you've got the caste system, which mm -hmm. is not one of the indigenous systems I would want to keep. Um, uh, but, you know, very patriarchal. So, so there are, there are, there are challenges about indigenous systems as well. But I'd say the first thing is to learn what they are and, and to mm -hmm. see, um, you know, what are the opportunities for improving. So I want to ask, pick up on the thread that you threw in there about seed. And I know that throughout India, you know, people like Vandana Shiva have been doing a lot of work. Has has that work ex extended into Nepal as well, or is that um, is was there ever an issue um, with seed? Like, what I, I'm unfamiliar with with this territory. So, um, what's what's going on with seed in in Nepal with farmers? Absolutely. I mean, the same patterns that you see globally, um, you know, a move to uh, to centralisation of seed resources, to replacement of indigenous resources with hybrid, gene genetically modified, etc. Um, that pattern is there. And, and this attempt by um, governments, governments lobbied by corporations to uh, yeah, take seed resources away from communities and into the hands of corporations. It's 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 frightening. Um, so, is the work that you've done been well. able to address that? Like, yeah. there've been seed banks, community seed banks. Like, what's been happening in in that space? Has that been a part of? Yeah, it's it's kind of a a no brainer really for any any sensible regenerative project is that it needs to be involved with seed. Um, so we are indeed. Um, and all the groups we have, you know, we, we do everything from from training in production to um, uh, facilitating exchange, uh, creating seed banks and and breeding as well to improve mm. breed, breeding using local skills. Um, and, you know, not this isn't hybridization. Um, it's it's just traditional breeding that farmers have done for thousands of years yeah. to, to improve varieties and land races. Yeah, just selecting each season to improve it and finding yeah ways to yeah build the strength of yeah. it. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you've found that have helped to ripple this out? I know that you know you've been going there every year for how many years now? Except for COVID last year you were saying pretty much 35. every year. 35 years. 35 years. Wow. Yeah. So what happens when you're not there? Like I know you do, when you're there, you're, you know, doing a lot of um, coordination work and linking communication work and, and checking in where everyone's at and helping develop up materials and things. What what happens when in the in-between time? Like who who runs the project on the ground and, and how has that worked and how is it continuing to, you know, uh, share that idea out into the community, and, and in what ways is that happening? Sorry, that's a whole lot of questions all in one go. But anyway, basically, so 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 basically, everything happens when I'm not there. Um, you know, and and the last two years has shown how important it is to have a, a you know those resilient kind of systems. Um, so it's not at all dependent on me. Um, I do play a role. I mean, I started, so in that 1988, when we started, I was farming. I learned my farming um, on, a, on a few farms, you know, in Jajakot, basically, and, and then living with farmers around. I ploughed, collected fodder, firewood, all that sort of thing. Um, ever since then, the process has been to slowly um, withdraw from having to do that. Uh, it went from the farming to the training. So then I became a trainer, 
um, and then passed that on and then became a trainer's trainer. So, so you know, moving up levels um, and, and sort of withdrawing from the need to actually be there. Um, and, you know, it's not my project at all. I'm just a little a little cog in the in, in the in the process in, in the engine really um so so i'm i you know i call myself an ad- advisor um and i advise uh, and at the same time network and and make connections you know go for fundraising if that's a need although we haven't had a, a significant need for for many years now we're actually on the pro- in a in a process of um at the end of a project cycle 10 year project cycle um and now the onus is actually on how to be not reliant on donors um and how to be able to produce you know income um and resources from within the program and and that's always been a uh, an aim really but now we're we're kind of more focused on that in terms of scaling up um as I mentioned, the first few years, the first 10, 12 years, we went from, you know, zero to 12,000 farmers, 63 villages, et cetera. Um, it, was, it was interesting to see that growth process um, and the fact that, you know, if, if it, would be always po- it would be always possible for more villages to come and say, we want to join and, and so instead of providing one village with two secateurs, you provide, have to provide 10 villages with two, and that's 20 secateurs. Um, and so, you know, you could just keep on expanding until you need a thousand secateurs. But then all your budget goes on buying secateurs and managing, you know, buying them and sending them and, and, and all that sort of thing. And we realized that that's not, you know, that's, an ex- that's a, a continuous growth model. Um, which, as we know, has serious, you know, uh, uh, issues um, about continuous growth. And so we've we've learned over the years, in particular over the last sort of ten or fifteen years, that we need to remain small, um, like a, a beating heart. But the body around that changes, um, and the limbs can extend, um, uh, or rather, not the limbs extend, but but. The you know the energy and the resources coming out of that body can can you know go go, go away freely um, and be like seed uh, in you know in different there's lots of parallels um, with other things metaphors um, to to self germinate so so we've got a core uh, we've got a core number of villages actually at the moment it's 30, 31 or thirty two villages in two districts and a core staff uh, and then we have what we call the barefoot consultants mm-hmm. so these are farmer resource people basically men and women that have been through the years of training um, of applying the principles and the practices on their own land in their own communities um, they then are given specific training like um, tot trainers training group group facilitation training uh, and, and permaculture design, obviously, um, and then they can go wherever, mm-hmm. you know. And, and we have lots of connections now with other organisations, local government as well, um, and they're saying, okay, we want to start this project in that district or that village. Send someone, um, and you know, either um, they can pay for it as well, um, and so they basically provide employment um, for these cons- consultants or barefoot consultants, um, or we have small amounts of budget um, to, that we can pay as well. Right. Um, so, so basically, um, you know, the idea is that they are they are actually responsible for spreading and, yeah, and expanding and scaling up. Yeah. Um, and we, and retain, we retain a kind of key heart and core of demonstration farms um, that we can do that as well, but people come to us. It's not like we have to go out. Yeah, that was going to be my next question about how important the role of having a really substantial demonstration or network of demonstration farms is to this work in in uh, sharing this kind of skill and knowledge. Absolutely, um, from the very very start of the project, uh, we realised that there were three main kind of pillars or strategies uh, to have. And the first is demonstration. 
if you can't see it, you know, seeing is believing is is the adage. Um, and you can't do that on a whiteboard or even on a video. I mean, the videos and stuff help, obviously, when you, when you can put things uh, together like that. But, you know, to actually go to a place and be able to see it um, and touch the plants and, and understand, you know, the soil and the compost and, and that sort of thing is the, is the first, has to be the first stage. The yeah. second stage is then training because you see something and you think, oh, wow, that looks great how do I learn how it's how is it done um, and so the training and the de- the uh, education is the second part and then the third part is then well you know farmers have been they've seen they've seen the fruit trees they've understood they've learned how to do grafting and layering and all the technical stuff now they need some seed or they need a plant a mother plant um, or it might be a book or a film video, uh, a video or something, the resources mm-hmm. um, to be able to go home and and implement it on their own land in their own community. So those were the three things, demonstration, training and resource provision. Mm-hmm. Um, we've since kind of added um, uh, to that uh, research because when you have funded, supported or subsidised farms, you can take risk. And we realise that sometimes that's necessary if you're going to try new things in new context. Um, so that might be for doing no-till or green manures or, or biofertilizers or something new anyway that um, you know that you want to try. Farmers can't afford to fail. That's that's one of the issues that we saw uh, found. Um, they can't afford to try things if it's going to fail. They need to try things that they know are going to work. Um, uh, and so so. Research was one uh, extra strategy. And the final one is, is then advocacy, mm-hmm. because, you know, if you've got something that works, um, you need to be able to lobby, you know, local government, government to say, you know, this is actually where you need to put your resources, not in uh, things that are damaging either social structures, economic structures or, or the ecology. Who's doing uh, that advocacy work? Is that local people there who are leading the program going and again, showing, it, it, inviting them there or how how do they do the advocacy work again it links back to the demonstration so so a farmer can you know can advocate something if he can say well look this is what i'm doing and this is how it's working mm-hmm. um so and it links then to the training because when they have the skills to pass that knowledge on uh, you know you can be incredibly knowledgeable about things but not be able to talk to other people or not be able to communicate very well so so to have those skills is to become uh you know a a lobbyist basically Mm -hmm. so Um, so that's yeah that's one level uh the other level is actually to you know to to go to local authorities and say or understand what their programs are Mm -hmm. so for example the agriculture office might have a program to um, to work with rice farming and we can say well hey we've got you know 40 farmers that are growing um, SRI rice um, so that's a that's a you know a specific technique or group of principles that means you need less water and less seed um, and it needs to be organic but you get it you can get two or three times the productivity um, and say well you know we've got these demonstrations send your farmers to come and look um and so that's another way again it's it's based through the the actual practical work that's going on so through through that like going and saying look this is what's happening over here come and have a look bring your off government government officers bring your policy people bring your farmers what kind of shifts have you been able to see or to manifest at that level like is there some kind of shift happening in the policy level very slowly and i mean it is one of the things that we you know it, from the very start again from 1988 we worked we looked to work with local government um and i you know actually some of the horror stories also come from that area so <laughs> so local government actually imprisoned two of our uh, uh carpenters who were who went to a village to build beehives and leap weaving looms and they were imprisoned in shackles uh you know accused of uh felling forest and and various things and they were basically treated like murderers in the local jail 
Um, and so that's also something that can happen with local authority interaction. Uh, they're very temporary. Um, they're usually based just on their own on their own agendas, you know. Um, so, so we always have to be aware that putting energy into um, making those connections might often be wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that obviously doesn't stop you needing to always be open to having those new conversations. Yeah, because what about sometimes universities or. So, sorry, go ahead, Chris. Sorry, I was going to say sometimes sometimes it works and something productive does come out of it. Um, it's just it's a bit hit and miss. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's a bit like working here as well. You know, I think you know the kind of thing that you're doing is just going out and doing it and setting it up and teaching people and people seeing it and and it speaks for itself in a way. You know, and it's easier sometimes if you've got policy that can help support it, but. Like you said, just focusing your energy there can sometimes be yeah. a real drawdown of of energy. And when you're really trying to sort of make every dollar and every bit of energy make the biggest possible difference, I, I totally get what you're saying. I was just going to ask you whether there was any interest, you know, from universities or research bodies there, you know, like in terms of agroecological approaches or whether it had got into schools and whether schools were having school gardens and teaching it like where else has it rippled into sort of public space definitely we have a we have a, a proactive schools program um so we work with schools in in our own project areas um and that's because they've got land so so physical you know work on the land with tree planting gardens nurseries etc but also with curricula mm-hmm. um so so you know spending time with kids in their lessons um which you know the, the schools are so far in in some cases anyway been very happy to provide also developing curricula um or, or uh, vocational training um, as part of, of school curricula, that's also an ongoing thing. So, so yeah, connection with schools um, is is very good, very proactive. Um, uh, there is pro- there is connection with local authorities in some areas um, to try and, in particular, from our side to try and draw down some funding. So I talked about not being dependent on on you know donors and charities and the like. Um, there's lots of local authority money often, um, even in a poor country like Nepal. Uh, and I say poor in inverted commas. It's rich in many in many ways. Um, uh, so, but you know, governments do have money, obviously, for you know educational, agricultural, health, uh, and livelihoods development, and those are all the areas that we work in. Yes. So, so. It's very much a working process, really. But we realise that we have to focus on what the farmers are doing and and getting those demonstrations, those training resources, um, getting the proof there, you know, that these systems work. Um, And then, you know, it's up to other people to to also take it on, um, Mm -hmm. as well as coming back to the policy policy advocacy and lobbying type um, work, that really involves also networking with other organizations rather than trying to do that by yourself. Mm. Um, and so that's partially the yeah uh, permaculture network within Nepal. Um, that's partially um, other uh, related uh, top, uh, uh, things like agroecology, for example, which is getting more press now. Mm-hmm. So actually permaculture development is is you know is quite specific. But agroecological development um, is becoming much more um, kind of broadband, you know. So FAO and 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 uh, through FAO, they've got they've got now lobbying and, and policy structures to uh, to. What I understand is it feels feels like it's kind of something that's a little bit easier maybe to to grab hold of it because it's more. You know, it is more about farming, whereas permaculture is more about the whole systems approach. And and maybe it's easier just to kind of grasp it. And and I hear often in in these sorts of conversations that there is, you know, permaculture is considered an agroecological approach. I kind of uh, often flip it around and and think about um, agroecology being 
you know, one of the <laughs> kind of strategies or approaches that you can embed within a permaculture system. I don't know, what, what are you, what's your thinking around that? Absolutely, I totally agree. And um, interestingly, when I was talking about the history of the, of the project, um, and where you know we went through this kind of 10, 12 year growth from zero to 12,000 farmers, we didn't use the word permaculture in that, mm. or very, very rarely, because it doesn't translate. You know, there isn't a translation to that word in in, Nep- in Nepalese. Um, and but looking at agroecology, it's like you take you take okay, farming and nature. Um, and those two things can be translated very easily. Yes. Um, and is very close to understanding that that you know communities have because nature is all around them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they work with nature every every day as soon as they get up. Um, so yes, it's it's much more uh, translatable mm-hmm. um, without using the, the p word. Easy just to, to grab. Yeah, I wanted to ask you too. Um, you know, a couple of years ago there was the disastrous earthquake in Nepal. I wonder what what happened, what did you see happen there in, and in terms of how maybe the work of permaculture being able to help with the disaster relief or, you know, what, what happened at that point? And how, uh, are they going, yeah. and how are they going now? Well, um, so our areas weren't affected um, directly because they're in the far west of Nepal. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, the, uh, we had one farm in Kathmandu, the Sunrise Farm that was damaged and we set up a crowdfunder and to repair that. And at the same time, um, we started up a project, um, that was funded by Lush, uh, Lush, Lush Cosmetics, um, to bring pharma, the, the barefoot consultants that I was mentioning earlier, to bring them from our areas um, to um, uh, four villages um, in that were you know that were obliterated basically mm. um, by the earthquake, and to work with farming systems uh, there, including seed. So you mentioned seed earlier on. Well, our areas actually produced or gifted about 150 kilos of, of mm. different types of seed vegetables mainly but also some grains to so to some of the earthquake affected areas there um, and also then seedlings so grafted apples and, and other plants so they were actually able to provide a whole lot of stuff um, for free um, so they were gifted by these groups and that was really that was really enriching to see that that um you know the farmers they didn't have any money they could give them um or you know tarpaulins or that sort of thing or or or, or sacks of rice for for you know immediate disaster response uh, but they had seed and they had seedlings um and they had people they had trainers that could that would go that went to to live in these villages some of them for two or three years Actually, that was, this is, that, I mean, this is a key on. part of that resilience, like a permaculture approach being about building long-term resilience, isn't it, rather than sort of boom or bust or just, you know, like just focusing on one harvest or just focusing on disaster relief. It really is this in for the longer term and that whole, that's fantastic yeah. news. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So you're about to go there again soon, I hear, which is very exciting for you because I know that, you were saying early before we got on how much it makes your heart sing to be there. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, how has your work in Nepal informed the work that you do back home in the UK? And how, you know, how, how has it changed? Well, I, maybe you don't have any reference point because you can't always be going there, but how do you feel like it's actually influenced and informed the work that you do and now even at Applewood Farm too, where you're based in it's Herefordshire, isn't it? That's Did right. I get that right? Um, yeah. Herefordshire, yeah. Um, just on the border with Wales. Um well, I suppose, you know, this the structure of, of um demonstration training and resources um is is something that was developed in Nepal. Um, but I carry that around with me wherever. Uh, and one of the things that I really enjoy doing um, with other people or organisations is developing resource centres. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, that is the basic strategy for that. So you need a, res- a resource entry, something that demonstrates, trains, and provides resources for um, or from. Um, and so, so that has been stuck with me wherever, you know, wherever I, I've been. Um, and it's only in the last six years now that we've actually had our own place here as Applewood Permaculture Centre in Herefordshire. Um, and, and that, you know, remains our, our focus, our mission is, is demonstration, demonstration and education in uh, resilient livelihoods, landscapes, and lifestyles mm-hmm. as the strap line goes so and don't you also do training programs to help people understand how to more effectively work in, in um, permaculture development work is that something that you're also doing i know you have in the past with um, covid's kind of changed how everyone's doing things lately but is that something you continue to do Definitely, and and you know the development side of it, working in uh, what I call two thirds world countries, um, is you know that's been my life for thirty five years, and 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 I'm going to keep doing that, um, whether I have to do it online or not. So yeah, we had a course, we developed a course, um, permaculture for development workers, which is where people working in conventional development. Um, uh, uh, get permaculture inputs so like that's about you know then diversification um integration between different aspects of development whether it's health farming um education livelihoods whatever all the different what we call silos of development um further into into then relief so uh you know disaster relief and um type projects as well um, so, so the the principles are applicable applicable wherever you are and whatever you do, as as you know. Um, but we thought, okay, so what? So my experience is that is that permaculture is very very well um, adapted to or adaptable to working in development situations. Mm-hmm. Um, bearing in mind that development could be down the road in the local village. That, that need so it's about you know people identifying their needs and being able to to meet them and to be able to problem solve whether that's in Herefordshire or in Nepal um, or you know wherever um, it's it's relevant and so so I mean now we're fortunate that we've got our own base here so instead of going off to other people's farms or, or, or communities or places to to teach uh, we we do it from here on our own resource centre but ultimately that is an extension of the strategy that you know was developed uh, back in 1988 in 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 the district of Jajakot in a little corner of you know a little one acre farm yeah. um so so it's kind of gone is that on the sort of there. size of farm up there that is typical like one acre farming is that pretty standard yeah one to two acres i mean they have then obviously access to a huge amount of of community and and forest land um which might be in various states of of health um or degradation um so it was one of the earliest um uh really interesting statistics that i learned that i learned about was that to uh, to sustainably uh manage uh, a unit of um homestead or small holding in nepal so farm takes six units of forest so that's mm-hmm. an acre to six acres and that's providing fodder fuel wood for the for the household leaf litter for the for the um livestock um you know which and the fodder and the livestock and the and the leaf litter actually obviously that's the nutrient cycle that runs the whole business um uh, but then also wild food mushrooms you know game um, all of that, taking all of that into into account, the FAO came up with this six to one ratio. Mm-hmm. So, from a very early time, our uh, our aim became to reduce that ratio. So, mm-hmm. reduce the amount of time and uh, and reliance that there is on the forest um, by design of farms. So, so um, we on on the demonstration farms that we had originally, we brought that that ratio down to zero we didn't have to leave the farm at all 
um, to get the resources of fodder and firewood and uh, and leaf litter f- to run the farm. It was all produced by on-farm design, mainly through agroforestry, but also green manures and you know growing biomass on the farms basically, and then cycling that um, and creating those interactions between different resources. That's so prof- we it down to zero. That is profound when you think about it, because. You know, often it's things like that, the use of the commons or the use of the forest, even if it's done in a sort of a low-impact way, is as things change is an externality and they don't end up getting managed. And so by shifting that pattern, you know, the forests, hopefully the forest can then have more of a chance to to be protected and be long-term managed and uh and, and yeah. also I think it's really fascinating to really explore this idea of the commons. Like how, how was that How was that managed and are, are the commons still there and available for people? Is this shifting and changing as, you know, Nepal modernises or as Nepal grows in population and the agriculture's shifted? Like what's happened to all that common forest? Well, when, I, when, I, when I first went there as a forester, um, one of the things that I learned was that um, the forests were nationalised mm-hmm. um, probably now about 50 years ago, uh, 50 or 60 years ago, um, which took the ownership out of communal hands and into government hands. And that's when the project, the problem started in terms of over-exploitation. Um, so, you know, you own something, you tend to look after it, um, even if it's communally owned. Uh, but when that's taken away from you and put into government hands, then all of a sudden it's a you know it's a free resource mm. um so that was one aspect uh and what we moved towards you know again through the demonstration and the mobilization was that by the good design of farms then you reduce the the pressure on the forest mm-hmm. and forests can go you know can regenerate yeah. um, and you don't need to plant we stopped planting seedlings quite early on um, it, I re, uh, you know, in community areas, in forest area or degraded forest areas, all you need to do is protect, keep the livestock off, uh, keep the fire off, um, and you know we we saw regeneration on massive areas um, of of degraded land. Mm-hmm. One yeah. thing where permaculture really helped with that was, of course, the zonation theory. So so it was about okay, the farm. If you look at a farm as sort of zone one to three. Zone four is then the communal grazing areas and zone five are the forest areas. Um, then the aim of good design, as far as I understand it, is, is to not rely on the, on the five, to you know, have a, a regenerative four, um, and then to focus your production on one to three or zero to three, yeah. in fact. Right. Um, which, is why, which is where we were able to you know, not need to go to zone five and we brought brought those resources onto the farm. Um, Brilliant. Uh, that's so fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you said that because I think that's a really important point. And, and just as you were talking about it too, I'm, I'm wondering too what the impact of climate change is having on the forest, on the landscape, on water systems, on on communities there. What What's going on up there? Well, again, it's similar patterns to that you see all over, unseasonal rainfall, um, I mean, temperatures hasn't been such a, an issue, but rainfall has um, in particular. So it rains when it shouldn't and it doesn't rain when it should. Uh, you know, harvest time is when it should be sunny and dry. And if it's raining, it damages your crops. Um, so they have definitely been feeling the effects. In fact, even 20 years ago, we were starting to see, you know, farmers were saying this is different. Something's changing here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what I've what I've always said is that actually the the techniques and strategies to be resilient in general work for climate change. So you know, more more organic matter in the soil, more diversity, more more emphasis on perennials. Um, you know, capture your water, um, put it in the soil, put it into biomass, uh, extend your growing seasons you know include increase your options like you know multi multi systems for for important functions um so so that's what we needed to be doing anyway um and the good news is that that works to mitigate 
um, the, a lot of the effects of climate change. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, understanding that farmers need to be also adaptable because it is changing um, and really need to um, kind of shore up resources and make sure that the, the resources are being <clears throat> um, regenerated as much as possible. The first and the first activity is always do no harm. Yeah. So stop stop activities that are harming, you know, and that's chemicals, and that's that's often tillage or or, late, or leaving the soil bare. Um, there are times when it's appropriate to do that. I would also add, but um, you know, stop harming is is what we have to do. You know, we have to design our systems to to remove that. And it's not like it's not like saying, okay, well, we'll cope with a certain amount of damage and and poisoning of the land it's like no don't you know stop that work that that is harming the environment harming biodiversity um harming water and, and harming air um so that needs to be stopped um, and then we can look at okay how do we how do we kind of shore up the the defenses and and protect and become and create more resilient systems yeah, I, I was wondering too. <clears throat> excuse me about um, taking the lessons from this work and applying it to, you know, the communications that you do at a global scale. You you're talking in like you know regenerative collab type permaculture collab type groups. H how are the lessons that you're learning on your place in Nepal also then helping to inform? broader conversations in permaculture as as you know someone who's been in permaculture since pretty much the beginning you know it's uh where do where do you see your role in in that well interestingly before this our chat started i was um on a call with a, a, a group in in the uk um that are connected to the the permaculture association working on the land uh what's called the land project learning and demonstration um, and and that is about setting up, um, or not setting up, but promoting and supporting people and communities that are that want to do this demonstration and training type stuff. So so maybe it was uh, a long time ago, twelve years ago, fifteen years ago. Um, the Permaculture Association got lottery funding to start um, a project, um, and that in fact was partially informed by the work we were doing in Nepal. Mm -hmm. So, so demonstration training and resource production, as I've mentioned, the three kind of pillars or strategies um, was taken up by the Permaculture Association here. Funded, it got they got funding through the lottery to set up a set, you know, a, 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 a network of centres. So, land centres or land learner centres. So, on the way to being a land centre which is basically a, a centre or a place, could be a back garden or a front garden even, where people would go and they'd leave understanding what permaculture was. So that was the main, that was the main kind of, you know, uh, output. Brilliant, like. yeah. And, uh, I, and, and so that network exists now and people can join that network still? That's still so open? That's exactly, that's exactly what the meeting was about, was about redeveloping, because that, that was happening some 15 years ago. Um, and it was only funded, you know, it was like, I think, funded for 10 years or so. And it was like, well, how do we keep that going? Um, and and we didn't quite have the, the perfect design or the functional design to do that. So it fell a bit by the wayside. Having created a network of over 100 different places, from, from literally from back gardens to like two or three acre holdings, um, so then we looked at okay, how do we take it up to farm le farm level, and that became the farmland project. Um, and now um, it's being revamped, um, and we're also calling it Island, which is inter there's a, there's another aspect which is Island, which is international land centres. So it's also kind of on a global level as well, um, where yeah, we're just looking to create or or a sim or. I mean, some of it is already there. It's not inventing new stuff. It's also just coordinating and linking up things that are already going on uh, and making that a kind of a learning and demonstration resource for people everywhere. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, in two-thirds world places, it's going to be different. In tropical, subtropical areas, it's going to be different. Um, in in rich uh, countries or urban areas, it's going to be different. Obviously, in, you know, in the West, um, we have many more people living in cities. And so urban permaculture is much more significant um, to people connect to connect with. Um, and it's really exciting that, you know, we're, we're now revamping this design um, uh, to, to create more of these centers that are supported um, and then can share their own experiences. Because I think that's actually where we have to go. You know, we know these, we know these systems work. Um, we know people enrich themselves, their, you know, families, their land, their communities by doing this stuff. So it's like, well, how do we make that more accessible to to? And I think that's the thing too. Also, having those connected, it has a much bigger voice in a way of Absolutely. being more of being more visible uh, to the to the world beyond the permaculture world. So, if you're interested in permaculture, you know where to go to find that information. But it can also um, be, in a way, a leverage point for advocating for systems change. Because we can see that this system, like permaculture has trainers everywhere around the world. Permaculture has demonstrations everywhere around the world. It's working in, but together we can actually then start to shift things and you know, layer other conversations over that. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I will, in the show notes for this podcast, put a link to that work as well if it's possible. The, the island, is that something that we can so there's island. There's, there's several projects going on that are that are similar um, and parallel. So the land, the land network in the UK. So so that would be that would be a link to the Permaculture Association. Yep. Um, and their land project site. Um, the island is um, also a work in process. So so there are there is a format that people can actually apply to to be a land centre. Um, and you know we've got people from from uh, all places from Asia, Africa, um, from all over um, so far, um, yeah. and that's but it's also a working process. It's being developed, yeah. Um, so so it needs more it needs more people being involved with it as well. Um, so yes, excellent, yes. wonderful. So. Um, I know that you're you're very busy at this moment, getting prepared for a workshop at your place. Um, what's what's coming up for you? What's what are you doing this weekend? Uh, well, I mean, with the pandemic, you know, we've actually not had much going on here for the last couple of years. Almost, uh, we've moved a lot to online online uh, design courses and and other stuff. Um, my partner Luby's on with her cultural emergence. The people and permaculture side has been doing a lot more online stuff. So this is one of the opportunities um, that, with the relaxing of restrictions, we've you know wanted to go for. Uh, we've got a forest garden weekend coming up. Nice. So, Excellent. so learn, learning about uh, yeah, what, why, and how mm. for a forest for forest gardening. Fantastic. So. And where do people people just come from all over the UK for that? Where do you find people coming yeah. from? Yeah, yeah, all over, all over. I mean, if it's a, a larger course like the 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 tops, the trainers training, we get people also from um, Europe mm. coming to those as well. But Fantastic. hopefully next year is, is the aim is to do a trainers training, face to face trainers training, as opposed to an online one. Of course, yeah. But, we uh, used to have um, <laughs> lots of courses happening here at Crystal Waters too. And I remember when I was running the you know the PDCs and the advanced permaculture courses of all different sorts. It was generally half people from Australia and half from around the world, it's just totally not possible at this point in time. People can't get in or out of Australia. So the world has changed a lot since then. But well, it's, it's shown us the value of online linkage as well because actually, you know, a course can be much more accessible to people that, right. that can't travel. Um, it's reducing, obviously, the travel cost, the carbon footprint of travel. Um, and generally we found that we can run them cheaper. Because yeah. you know there are certain elements we don't have to pay for, yeah. um, and so that makes it a lot more accessible to to people on lower incomes as well. Yeah. So yeah, I'm it's sure a, you found that with your courses. It's um, it's such and you know it's such a an amazing 
different way of teaching and it's been such a fascinating way to explore um, connecting and creating communities of practice and design studios and education labs and conversation circles and all sorts of things that just keep the conversation going rather than just the course and then you're finished. It's an ongoing community, which is fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. It's been an absolute delight to sort of dive into your into your world of, of permaculture. I know there's something that you obviously, like me, will just continue for the rest of your rest of your life. And and obviously too, the fact that you know you're still as committed to it or maybe more than what you ever were, that there's the something about the possibilities in the future and addressing all the multiple crises that we're facing now, there's something in permaculture that you feel is really key. And maybe that could be something you could just end with a couple of reflections on that. Like what is, how do you, what is the future that you hope through a permaculture way of being? Yeah. uh, I mean, in some ways it's quite straightforward. It's connect with nature. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, what, what I think, the, the, one of the roots of the problems that we have is the disconnection with nature. Um, it's why, uh, certainly why we're in the sort of climate and biodiversity situation that we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, per- permaculture will, uh, will give that. It will give that connection, reconnection with nature. Um, and the second thing is stop doing the harm, you know, mm-hmm. stop any practices I remember Bill. One of the things from Bill's course was he had um, he had three steps for participation. One one was um, uh, stop your use of non renewable resources. So that's the fossil fuels. So get off that. Uh, one was connect yourself to the growing cycle. So that's grow your own food or be connected to growing food. And we, I know that not everyone can grow food um, through ver- for various reasons. And the third was make linkages with with like-minded people. So, and it, what's interesting is that all of those three things you can start doing right now, right now, um, in some way today, tomorrow, you know. Um, and and that that has always stayed with me as a. It was great at uh, making really effective, low-cost statements. Um, so so you know, small statements but with big meanings. Um, and so that sticks with me um so so reconnect with nature stop any harmful activities and leave a system better than you found it is is the other application that i find a need that might be the kitchen sink when it's time to wash up um or it might be i wish my kids knew that (laughs) that's what i teach them (laughs) leave it better than you found it um or it might be you know your your community or or woodland or, or whatever yeah, it's it's a kind of very simple common sense, but incredibly yes. powerful. And it's so great too that you had the chance to, you know, at a young age, spend time with with Bill and really be immersed in his world. It must have been quite an extraordinary thing to have that opportunity to do that. Mm. It was very enriching, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Um, enjoy your your forest garden course and um and your trip back to Nepal when you are able to do that. That's just wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Great. Thank you Thank very you. much. It's been great chatting. Yeah, me too. All right. That's 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 over. Chop. Thank you, Chris. That was just wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah. Great. Oh. So yeah, much richness in that. <coughs> so many. Um, sorry. <coughs> Key lessons of. Uh, just really cutting it down to like what are some of those key steps? And I think, you know, people can mm. really grab hold of those and go, oh, yeah, that's totally doable. I, I can do that. That, you yeah. know, and at whatever step, you can keep coming back to those pillars at whatever level you are in your experience and, you know, hang different things off it. So it can be simple mm. and small or it can be this multi-pronged project, but with those things. Yeah, uh, yeah, keeping, it, keeping it simple. One thing one thing I learned about, about Indigenous systems um, or indigenous uh, ethics and principles is that they usually come in in groups of two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, which 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 is also around simplicity. Um, 
uh, but also, you know, scale and appropriateness. If you, if sometimes, you know, like Holmgren's 12 principles, it's like, wow, there's 12. How can we remember all of those different things? But you've only got three ethics. Yeah. Um, and so that's really good. And yeah. then you've got, you've got, you've got demonstration, training and resources. It's just three things. Yeah. Um, and Bill's you, know, you get up to you can get up to a handful. I think that's probably the max, isn't it? Yeah, you know, one yeah. for each finger. That's it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, a lot of indigenous systems work at that level, that scale. So, so you know, two or three things, or or yeah, a handful of things, and that's how they that's how they can yeah. assemble their their modes of living. I think it's like you're saying, it's for anyone, really. Like, I even have trouble trying to remember. I managed to get, when it was originally Mollison's 10, I got those really nailed. I don't know yeah. if I could even nail off, you know, all the 12 principles just off the top of my head in that, in that order. It doesn't stick so much. Like, I, I know them intuitively and, and how, but to be able to list them off just doesn't kind of. Yeah. 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 But the ethics are simple because there's they only are. three. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you like a copy of my top 10 books to read, click the link below, pop in your email, and I'll send it straight to you. You can also watch this interview over on my YouTube channel. I'll put the link below as well. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment. And if you've enjoyed it, please consider giving me a star rating. Believe it or not, the more people do this, the more podcast bots will discover this little podcast. So thanks again, and I'll see you again next week.